You're listening to The Local Maximum, episode 225. Time to expand your perspective. Welcome to The Local Maximum. Now, here's your host, Max Sklar. Welcome, everyone. Welcome. You have reached another Local Maximum. Uh, what is today? Monday, May 9th, 2022. Great uh, great day of spring here. We finally made it through that winter. Um Speaking of winter, if you remember back to episode 159, this was not this winter, this was the previous winter, not 159, 157, episode 157, that was one of the episodes that came out, uh, it was a, it was a uh, co-hosted show, Aaron was, um, w- was, I was about to say Aaron was here, he wasn't here because there was no here yet, but Aaron was involved, and that was, um, uh, you know, we recorded remotely. That was one of the episodes that came out when I was preparing for the move to New Hampshire. So it was kind of rushed. I probably didn't think it was going to be a great episode at the time, but goes to show, you know, you never really know because episode 157 is really one of those episodes that's um, worth going back to and worth worth a re-listen. Uh, the title of that one was um, uh, Financial Tsunami on the Horizon, 157 Financial Tsunami on the Horizon. And that episode brought together a lot of different ideas. It brought together, you know, Strauss Howe generational theory, the fourth turning. It brought together ideas in economics. It brought together the ideas that we were talking about in uh, technology in terms of what these tech companies were doing, what's going uh, um, uh, on with their workforce internally, what's going on with their product externally and um, what's going on with their with their saturation and the um, the, uh, the 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 coming together and the centralization of the market all of those things were kind of coming to a head so we, we called the uh, show financial tsunami on the horizon and uh, well I no this is not very this shouldn't be uh, good news but I do think that um, it's uh, pretty clear that we are the financial tsunami is either here or we are starting to experience the first stage of it. You see, that's the thing. You never really know what stage of the, uh, of the, of the crisis or the tsunami you're in. You're, you, are, are we towards the end of it? Is this the, is this the big hit this week? Um, is this going to go on for a couple of years? Uh, probably it's not the end of it now, but it's, it's going to be very hard to figure out where the end of it. So we're, we're are, are, uh, experiencing the first waters of these of this financial tsunami right now. And so I want to talk, I'm going to summarize a little bit what's happened. Uh, then we're going to get out of the present day a lot. And I'm going to go way back into an article from 2001 and uh, <laughs> talk about, uh, uh, you know, I like to do that, pull up old articles, see how people were thinking, try to get us out of the, um, try to get us out of the the, the the mind worms of the of the moment. I probably shouldn't call them mind worms, but try to try to get us out of the um, of of the patterns of thinking of the moment. Look at the past and um, and and see what we can learn from it. And, you know what people got right and wrong in the past, and then maybe we can um, maybe we can see what we're possibly right or wrong about now. Um, all right. So just the first line of the CNBC article. I'm not going to read anything more. It was fun while it lasted, but after years of sky-high valuations, Silicon Valley is engulfed in its worst sell-off since 2008, uh, since the 2008 stock market crash. And there's some specific examples. One we haven't talked a lot about on the program 
was Peloton. That example was that company crashed from 163 to 17. I believe we've talked about that a lot in some of our predictions panel where we predicted the rise of these uh, 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 of um, this uh, exercise technology and uh, correctly, I think, but uh, now this company is uh, is crashing to the crashing to the ground uh, quite dramatically. Netflix similarly, very big, important uh, company in, in the history of recommendation engines and in the history of, of machine learning, uh, but also obviously, <laughs> from my perspective, that's what I would talk about, uh, but also, uh, you know, in terms, of, uh, in terms of video streaming, obviously it was the first, it was the, the, the blockbuster killer. You know, every once in a while when you say X is the Y killer, it's almost never true. With Netflix, it was absolutely true. It just came in and just just killed a major company that had stores all over the country. And uh, that had a tremendous run-up from 2011 till now and now is down dramatically. Amazon lost all their gains during COVID. Remember during COVID, they had huge gains uh, of, uh, you know, because everyone had to buy from Amazon. That's all gone. And uh, we've already talked about Facebook, uh, Meta. I don't think I'll ever call it Meta, but okay, Meta, uh, Google, and uh, and and Twitter. We talked about as well. You know, interestingly enough, there's uh, there's Microsoft and Apple. I've got to round out the the tech, um, the, the 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 big tech here. Uh, those are also down, but they are down less dramatically than the other companies. So um, take what you will from that. Uh, I think I have some ideas why, but I, I don't want to dive into it in this episode, but, uh, but that's interesting. And of course, crypto and Bitcoin is also down. Um, you know, there are some articles coming out, oh, crypto's dead, which is, <laughs> this is not a repeat from 2011. You know, I've been hearing that for uh, uh, 10 years at least. Um, well, I mean, for, for me, I, I probably have been hearing it for less, but you know, you could go on bitcoinobituaries.com and, and see that. So this is not unknown for for crypto and bitcoin to have these wild swings but now the market is affecting it because people in technology if they have to move money around if they have to you know uh if they if they have to rebalance their uh portfolio or something after some of these stocks go down then also they have to take it out of uh, of crypto and that goes down as well so it seems like uh there's some kind of a um uh there's some kind of connection to the market that crypto and Bitcoin has that it really didn't have as much before. Um, but anyway, um, what what does this mean uh, exactly? I think what it means is to go back to what we said, we are experiencing the first uh, tremors of the, um, of the financial tsunami, and it's affecting tech, which has gotten so big and so powerful over the last 10 years. And... Um, I think it's really going to end um, in an exciting way. I think it's going to end with a lot of opportunities, a lot of exciting opportunities for new technology to enter the market and uh, a new wave of innovation, which we have been sorely missing for the last few years. At least that's my optimistic hope. But I think there's going to be a lot of pain in the short term. So, uh, you know, sorry for everyone going through that pain uh, and, uh you know, hopefully, uh, hopefully we can just keep learning as much as we can and uh, see what we can uh, see what we can learn from it and see if we can um, see if we can dull the pain. Obviously, if you're in tech, if you're you're an engineer, you probably have nothing to worry about. Uh, but uh, you know, it's more for 
you know, investors and maybe founders, maybe some people who are um, trying to raise money for their company. Maybe it's going to be harder, but you know what? A lot of great companies are created at the time when, uh, at a time when it's, it's very difficult to raise money. You know, uh, Facebook, Google, and Amazon all hit it big in the wake of the, uh, of the dot-com crash. And I mean, you know, um, Google and Amazon got hit by it, but they were one of the survivors that then went on to become huge. Facebook was kind of one of those companies that, um, uh, that emerged uh, in the uh, in the aftermath of it, and then a lot of great companies were created around 2008 too. I'm talking about like you know Uber and Airbnb and you know Foursquare, of course. All all, all these other uh, Twitter, Twitter's a big one. Uh, all these companies get created around the time of these big crashes and corrections. And I think we're in the middle of one. I think it started with COVID. I think we're in a very dramatic time period, and uh, you can't see it anything else. In any other way, uh, in terms of your your work life, um, it, it, it's 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 easy to get freaked out, but it's nicer to look at it as a opportunity uh, to try something completely new. At least that's how I look at it, and um, and uh, I think. Um, I think uh, I, I think you should consider looking at it that way too. So, what do you guys think? Join the locals, maximum.locals.com if you want to weigh in. We have a lot of fun there. Um, you know, you get to support the show if you want to, or you could just kind of lurk and 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 see. But you know, it's nice. Not only do you support the show, um, but it's it's kind of we just it, it's not real. It's not uh, charity. It's just kind of it's fun. You can talk. You can I respond to everything that goes up on there, and I think we're going to have a lot of discussions about this anyway. So now I want to take you back, and this is kind of related. I want to take you all the way back to 2001. Wow, we go back to 2001 a lot in this program. But this is an article that was presented to me when I got into software maybe around 2006. Uh, And um, this was, I think this article was given to me by someone at my company, maybe by like, you know, the, the, the head of my department or something. Um, and then, of course, and then I think I had also a, a roommate who um, who worked for the author of this article. And, and I was like, oh, wow, this is two kind of connecting recommendations. I, was, I better read this. Um, of course, you know, if your boss tells you to read something, you kind of do it. Um, but um, this article was presented to me uh, uh, as kind of a statement of good practice. And I don't know if there were any critics of this particular article at the time, uh, but the the article, it, it's a warning against what the author, Joel Spolsky, call, calls uh, architecture astronauts. And the article told me to, I, the way I interpreted it, it kind of asked me to go against my basic instincts. And the idea is, well, if you're really smart, your basic instincts are to go up there and try to solve all the general problems, and you're going to waste everyone's time. So I somewhat followed it, but it never really sat well with me what this article was saying. So I'm going to read it, and I'll I'll tell you how I think about this today. Maybe we'll discover more as I'm reading it. And I think it applies to more than just software. It, It applies to the idea of should you try to solve specific problems or should you try to solve general problems? And what is the relationship between theory and practice? By the way, the author, Joel Spolsky, in 2000, around the time of this article, he founded Fog Creek Software, um, which is, um, I think, you know, 
uh, another competitor you might have heard of is like Asana today. And then he founded Stack Overflow, where he co-founded Stack Overflow, where he was CEO throughout the 2010s up to, up to today. And he still writes on this blog 20 years later. So I should definitely dig into this blog. Um, I'm reading it because you can see it's fun to read. So it's not like it's it's not like I I, um, I disagree with the article and it's boring. <laughs> These articles are fun to read. So it's worth doing. And, uh, you know, I'd certainly have him on the show if that was ever something uh, people were asking for. It's not like um, uh, it's it's just, hey, let's uh, let's let's not uh, take this this. Let's not take everything in this article as gospel, because, uh, you know, I think there's I think there's room to change uh, to change minds on this one. All right. So this article came out April 21st, 2001. I was uh, still in high school. This is pre 9-11. Don't let architecture astronauts scare you. Um, When great thinkers think about problems, they start to see patterns. They look at the problem of people sending each other word processor files, and then they look at the problem of people sending each other spreadsheets, and they realize that there's a general pattern, sending files. Uh, that's one level of abstraction already. Then we go up one more level. People send files, but web browsers also send requests for web pages. And when you think about it, calling a method on an object is like sending a message to an object. It's the same thing again. Those are all sending operations. So our clever thinker invents a new, higher, broader abstraction called messaging. But now it's getting really vague and no one really knows what they're talking about anymore. Blah. When you go too far up, abstraction-wise, you run out of oxygen. Sometimes smart thinkers just don't know when to stop, and they create these absurd, all-encompassing, high-level pictures of the universe that are all good and fine, but don't actually mean anything at all. These are the people I call architecture astronauts. It's very hard to get them to write code or design programs because they won't stop thinking about architecture. They're astronauts because they are above the oxygen level. I don't know how they're breathing. They tend to work for really big companies that can afford to have a lot of unproductive people with really advanced degrees that don't contribute to the bottom line. A recent example illustrates this. Your typical architecture astronaut will take a fact like Napster is a peer-to-peer service for downloading music. Oh, by the way, uh, for some of you young folks out there, Napster... (laughs) Napster was a peer-to-peer service for downloading music. Napster was one of the first challenges to the old music industry. Um, And uh, ultimately, it led to the creation of... uh, Actually, we talked about Napster a little bit, uh, uh, a few... um, Our last episode, I believe, with with, uh, Joel, uh, with Joel Valenzuela. And um, he uh, was, uh, uh, he was talking about how, you know, the world will accommodate crypto and Bitcoin, just like uh, the music industry accommodated technology. They were like, yeah, we don't like that you get it for free from Napster, but we're coming up with something better. So that's that's essentially what happened. And it led to things like, you know, um, the iTunes store, now Apple Music and things like that, where, you know, you're still paying for music, but um, it's a lot less, a lot more convenient than it was before. So anyway, <laughs> back to the article got to explain this because it's like it's from 20 years ago. Your typical architecture astronaut will uh, take a fact like Napster is a peer-to-peer service for downloading music and ignore everything but the architecture, thinking it's interesting because it's peer-to-peer, completely missing the point that it's interesting because you can type the name of a song and listen to it right away. 
and they'll talk about all they'll talk about is peer to peer this, peer to peer that, and the other thing. Suddenly, you have peer to peer conferences, peer to peer venture capital funds, and even peer to peer backlash with the imbecile business journalists dripping with glee as they copy each other's stories. Peer to peer is dead. The architecture astronauts will say things like, Can you imagine a program like Napster where you can download anything, not just songs? Then they'll build applications like Groove, and they think they're more general than Napster, but which seems to have neglected that wee little feature that lets you type the name of the song and then listen to it, the feature we wanted in the first place. Talk about missing the point. If Napster wasn't peer-to-peer, but it did let you type the name of the song and listen to it, it would have been just as popular. Another common thing architects the Architecture astronauts like to do is invent some new architecture and claim it solves something. Java, XML, SOAP, XML RPC, Hailstorm.net, Ginny. I, oh, Lord, I can't keep up. And that's just in the last 12 months. By the way, I, uh, I actually don't know what all of these things are. Um, so then he goes on. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with these architectures. By no means. They're quite good architectures. What bugs me is the stupendous amount of millennial hype that surrounds them. Remember the Microsoft.net white paper? It says, quote, the next generation of Windows desktop platforms, Windows.net, supports productivity, creativity, management, entertainment, and much more, and is designed to put users in control of their digital lives. That was nine months ago. Last month, we got Microsoft Hailstorm. The white paper says, people are not in control of the technology that surrounds them. Hailstorm makes the technology in your life work together on your behalf and under your control. Oh good, so now the high-tech halogen limit in my uh, hal- Oh good, so now the high-tech halogen light in my apartment will start will stop uh, blinking randomly. Um, well, <laughs> I think uh, so this predates the uh, the smart homes where uh, yeah, we have uh, all of our, you know, the, uh, the the Amazon Alexa starts blinking randomly, sometimes your lights turn on, on and off. So, okay. Um, so continuing, oh good, so now the high-tech halogen light in my apartment will stop blinking randomly. Microsoft is not alone. Here is a quote from Sun, Ginny White Paper. These three facts, you are the new sysadmin, computers are nowhere, the one computer is everywhere, should combine to improve the world of using computers as computers by making the boundaries of computers disappear, by making the computer be everywhere, by making the details of working with the computer as simple as putting the DVD into your home theater system. And don't even remind me of the fertilizer George Gilder spreads about Java, a fundamental break in the history of the tech of technology. So, um, okay. I kind of stumbled over some of that. Sorry about that. But I think the point is the point he's trying to make is some of this stuff is like super highfalutin and, um, super, uh, you know, end of days, this technology is the, is the thing to end all thing. But the, um, the, the, I, I, I don't think that's played out. I, I mean, I, maybe I'm sure the author would have a, a, a Joel Spolsky would have a different opinion on this now, uh, or no, would, uh, would, would disagree with me about the uh, application of what he's trying to say here. But I feel like a lot of these things 
did have a huge impact on the world. Yes, Java was a fundamental break in the history of technology. George Gilder was right. And you know what? This whole, uh, oh, computers are everywhere. You know, and in 2001, you can look at that and say, wow, what a bunch of crap that is. But that's that's cloud computing. And yes, that, that is everywhere. The cloud is everywhere. We all know this. And so a lot of the things that he said was ridiculous uh, actually came to happen. So I'd, I'd like to get his take on it, but also like I think this article may have put people down, given people the wrong idea. All right, so he writes, that's one sure tip off to the fact that you're being assaulted by an architecture astronaut. The incredible amount of bombast, the historic, heroic, utopian grandiloquence, I'm sorry, my, uh, my vocabulary is not up to speed here, the boastfulness, the complete lack of reality, and people buy it. The business press goes wild. So, you know, yeah, I, I just want to say, like, I, I agree that um, some people use language that is ridiculous. Um, he, he keeps continuing. Why the hell are people so impressed by boring architectures that often amount to nothing more than a new format on the wire for RPC or a new virtual machine? These things might be good architectures. They will certainly benefit the developers that use them, but they are not, I repeat, not a good substitute for the Messiah riding his white ass into Jerusalem or world peace. No. Microsoft computers are not suddenly going to start reading our minds and doing what we want automatically just because everyone in the world has a passport account. Eh, maybe that kind of happened. No, uh, well, not for Microsoft. No, son, we're not going to be able to analyze our corporate sales data as simply as putting DVD into your home theater system. Well, now it's impossible to put your DVD into your home theater system. Okay, so I think some, I'm going to, I'm going um, uh, to, I'm going to, uh, uh, Stop with the last two paragraphs because there's a lot more uh, examples of uh, <laughs> technologies that no longer exist. Um, so yeah, a lot of these things, obviously, th that's the that's um, that is the uh, uh, that th 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 that's how it works with innovation, where a lot of things come out and only a few things stick. So you hear a lot of hype, and some of those things that are hyped up are true, and some are not, and you have to kind of use your judgment, use your wisdom to figure out what's what. Um, and obviously, it's kind of unfair to go back 20 years and start picking apart someone's article uh, from 20 years ago uh, because, uh, oh, we don't use DVDs anymore, even though it's kind of funny. But um, no, a lot of the things that um, some of the, this is does kind of fall for uh, fall under the same problem that uh, Cliff Stahl did when he was like poo-pooing the internet in, 2000, uh, in uh, 1996. Um, when he said the internet will never do all of these things, and then the internet did all of these things. Now, Spolsky here is not saying that um, all these architectures are wrong or all these projects will fail or that it's bad. So I think he's reacting to some of the um, some of the just very arrogant way uh, these things are being sold to technologists. And I totally agree with that. So. Uh, yeah, let me. There is some good here, so let me uh, let me let me think what the good is takeaway from the article. So first of all, um, in terms of architecture, astronauting, uh, I, I think like just like in, in in real life, you often need specific examples before you can understand the general problem. And smart people often want to go to the general problem. And I think when you're running the comp a company, especially a startup like Joel Spolsky is, you are trying to get a product to the customer uh, as soon as possible. You're trying to build a minimum viable product. And um, 
as a result, you can't kind of waste time trying to solve every problem or trying to solve the general problem. And um, I think that that's, I, I think that once you have some specific examples, you could kind of put things together and combine them. But that doesn't mean that you never solve the general problem. And it doesn't mean that, okay, a lot of these um, people with PhDs at, at Google, he said like at, at, uh, at big companies that now would be Google, which, which wasn't really doing that back then. But, um, you know, yes, some of them are not really getting a lot done. In fact, most of them at Google are not getting a lot done. But I think like a lot of them are. A lot of these very smart people are coming up with really good solutions and really good technologies. And I'll give an example in a bit. Um, I think that, uh, you know, it, it's uh, it, it, so when you have a long-term software project, sometimes it's helpful, again, to solve a specific case, even if it's less elegant, try to be more concrete, less abstract, then you understand how it works before thinking more abstractly. But that's also how we learn things. That's how we learn like mathematics. Um, you know, when you learned addition, multiplication as a, as a child, oftentimes you kind of learn how to do it in specific cases. You learn how to do it uh, algorithmically. Uh, but then later on, you try to understand the general uh, the general pattern of in mathematics, and then that puts you on a level of a higher understanding. And then not only can you do what you did more efficiently or more automatically, but then you can learn how to do more. And a lot of uh, uh, teachers in mathematics, I think, have trouble um, uh, uh, giving that to their students, the ability to abstract and the ability to learn more. It's often very difficult. Um, but so, again, what was I trying to say here? What I was trying to say is that, you know, yes, I agree. Sometimes it's good to talk about the concrete problem you're talking about. Sometimes it's and, and it's especially good when he talked about Napster and music. Um, and and it, it was actually, he was correct there when he said, the point is I could type in a song and get it. And yes, that's why Spotify today is very popular. That's why Apple Music today is very popular. Um, that's why Amazon Music all does that same thing. Um, then again, you know, he, he said, well, you know, the, how can I generalize this? Well, you know, th there's a lot of things that uh, share files today. There's cloud computing, there's Dropbox. And so, yes, there's a general solution as well that's also very, uh, that's also very popular. And I think Spolsky himself solves a, a lot of general problems in his career, uh, from productivity software to question answering service, uh, stack overflow. So that is kind of a form of hyper generalization. He's generalizing the product. He's not necessarily generalizing the architecture, but half the stuff on Stack Overflow is talking about generalizing architectures. Uh, but look what's happened throughout the last 20 years when you talk about te technical architectures. You had the rise of new programming languages, functional programming, very popular today, was not so popular in 2001. So things like Scala must have been created by an architecture astronaut. Also, new databases, MongoDB, for example, MapReduce technology, Hadoop, um, big table uh, it used to be over at Google. Um, you know, those were created by architecture astronauts trying to find a general solution to computations that we're doing over and over again. And of course, the big one, machine learning technology in Python, R, Bayesian tools, uh, et cetera. You know, in Python, you had PyMC, PyTorch, TensorFlow uh, from Google, um, you know, OpenAI trying to solve very general, uh, uh, trying to make kind of like a general uh, uh, a language machine with GPT-3, aren't these all created by architecture astronauts? So I, my, 
my one question from this is what the heck is wrong with being an architecture astronaut? I think that the world needs more architecture astronauts. Uh, the only question you have to ask at your specific company, uh, you, you have to do it at the right time in the right place. Um, and so I, I don't think there should be a general ban or disdain from them. I just think that the, the point of the article, I would have liked the point of the article to have been more like, you know, there's a time and a place to work on the general long-term solution, and there's a time and a place to work on the short-term solution. And that, and figuring out the difference, that is uh, the product of experience and wisdom. And so there you go. That's how your experience and your life experiences and, and what you've tried to do um, can help you be uh, get better, not just as a software engineer, which I know most of you aren't, but also like, you know, whatever your job is or, or life, you know, think, should I think short term or think long term, switch back and forth, you know, and I think you'll get very far over the years. I think that um, Joel's article probably fit the times, uh, but we need an update. You know, that was the time of uh, just at the beginning of move fast and break things, you know, just put things out on the internet, they will fly. And, um, then you can get feedback for the next iteration. And uh, I'm still, I still believe in building things iteratively, iteratively but uh, now you see that tech is kind of broken, going back to uh, what we were talking about, the beginning of the program. And so I think that we need to end the philosophy of short-term thinking and replace it with a philosophy of long-term thinking, uh, but <laughs> without... Um, uh, you do have to have some caveats there as to uh, you know when to deploy long-term thinking. Uh, by the way, another example of architecture astronauts, the whole crypto industry is architecture astronauts. Bitcoin, he mentions peer-to-peer -peer as kind of this uh, ridiculous thing. Bitcoin was presented as peer-to-peer -peer cash. Okay, now it's presented differently, but uh, you could still trade these things peer-to-peer. -peer. That was the idea. And, you know, according to this article... Bitcoin and Ethereum and crypto should never have taken off. Ethereum especially is uh, created entirely by architecture astronauts, but they're like, you know, it, um, you know, he's thinking more astronauts who are like going uh, out of our atmosphere. Those are like astronauts going outside the solar system. Those are, that is a, a crazy generic um, uh, 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 system, um, uh, Ethereum. Um, you know, kind of a general computer on the blockchain. Uh, and so, and look, you know, there are people saying, well, Ethereum doesn't do this today. It's not, you know, it's not good, whatever. But the point is, Ethereum has been around for seven years now, and it's been a very successful, and what's the market cap on that? Is it like, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars? So yeah, um, that's an example of an architecture astronaut uh, success. And so I think, I think we need more of it. Um, I think that the article is not completely wrong, but if I had a magic wand, I'd kind of reconfigure it to speak to those issues today. Finally, for some of my own trip into architecture, astronaut space, uh, at least in the machine learning sense, I do want to play my blog post on bias correction for supervised machine learning. I sort of uh, recorded a little video for that, um, and I have the blog post, I, the paper I put out a couple of months ago. Um, it's kind of a great example of taking a problem that I faced at work, a concrete problem. People wanted to measure their ads. But then, um, then we had a problem within machine learning, which is like, okay, what happens when you have data that's been uh, filtered 
um, and sampled in a biased fashion. And then it's like, okay, what is, how do we solve our problem? And then what's the general solution? Can we came up with a solution? Can you generalize this? Can you, uh, can you create bias and then correct for it in other machine learning systems? And so I put a little bit of thought into it and put out a paper and I, I'm happy I did it. I ha- I'm happy I did some architecture astronauting because, uh, you know, we have a problem, we solve a specific instance, and then we generalize it so that if we change the example or if we find this pattern again, we have something else in our toolkit. So have a listen to this and my take on its significance. Here we go. Hey, everyone. It's Max Sklar from Local Maximum, and today I am... Thrilled to share that after a ton of work, I recently published a research paper on Archive. It's called Sampling Bias Correction for Supervised Machine Learning. A local link is available as well as a Local Maximum podcast episode. That's episode 218. The paper says that if you receive only a portion of a data set for machine learning and you know the mechanisms by which the original data was abridged, then you can work out the formulas for learning um, learning on the original data set. In other words, you um, try to find out the answer you originally wanted, not the one on the biased data set that you got. The lost data will make your results less certain, but at least the bias itself can be counteracted in a principled way. I originally wrote this because of a problem that I worked out when I was building uh, and I was working on the attribution product for Foursquare back in 2017. We were using machine learning to predict the likelihood of people visiting places because the non-visit examples were humongous because usually you don't visit a place. We sampled it at a larger rate than the visit examples and the mathematics of sampling bias was researched to counteract this. I encourage anyone who is interested in machine learning and computer science in general to Check out specifically the introduction, specifically the first couple pages. It's a very quick read, and uh, it presents high-level ideas in our field. Uh, Section 3 also is really just Machine Learning 101, which I started writing it in order to establish the vocabulary, maybe get the variable name straight that I'll use later on, but eventually decided uh, to make it a freestanding walkthrough of the machine learning process. Uh, So if you want an introduction to machine learning from a Bayesian perspective, read this section. It serves as a high-level primer for people who are unfamiliar with machine learning but have some mathematical background. Supervised machine learning um, is specifically what it's about. It's not the only variety. It's not always presented as a Bayesian inference problem either, but I think this, this way of looking at it, this way of presenting it is an incredible tool for anyone who is trying to learn how all of this works. If you want to gain expertise in the bias correction problem specifically, and you want a deep understanding of how the Bayesian formulation solves this, then uh, I think you should read the whole thing. Of course, uh, if you just need to solve the bias correction problem for work, your deadline's coming up, feel free to just skip to the answer. It's in section five and section six for logistic regression specifically if you're using logistic regression. I hope that this research demonstrates that formulating a machine learning problem in the language of Bayesian inference helps to break down and answer and answer really tough questions. Uh, This particular solution would not have been possible without thinking in terms of Bayesian distributions. And I think that this paper will serve as an excellent case study 
for people to understand why that is. So I, I think once you stop thinking in terms of exact answers and you start thinking in terms of beliefs over possible answers, a whole new world of insights opens up. Finally, I really want this to be used in practice. Much noise has been made about bias in data sets. Uh, the solution I present here will allow practitioners to perhaps make assumptions about the bias and peek at the consequences of those assumptions, which is a useful first step. But more immediately, it's the original motivation of the paper, which is to reduce the size and composition of training sets so that computation becomes more efficient. The thinking behind this, it kind of progresses in four steps. The first step is you have a big data product. Great news, we've got a ton of data to run this model on. We can build something useful here. Uh, second step, there's a drawback to big data. Hey, using all this data takes a ton of resources. Are we past the point of diminishing returns? In other words, <laughs> is the right amount of data the exact amount of data that we have, or is it, would it be better if we had more data or better if we had less data? Uh, it's probably not the exact amount of data that we have. So how about we throw out some data, maybe pocket the savings, and the result will be just as good or like 95% as good, which is totally fine for us. Uh, third step is, okay, so I want to use uniform random sampling for this. How many examples do we have? Let's say we have 100 million examples, huge data set. I think that uh, if we train on only 1 million, um, then we'll, we'll still get good results. Um, so that, you know, we don't have to transmit all that information. That's a lot of savings. So for each data point, I'm just going to pick a random number so that it, it, it chooses to keep it, it chooses to accept it 1% of the time. Then we'll end up with around a million points. And then finally, you get to bias sampling. It's like, but wait, some data points are more valuable than others because we have a label imbalance maybe or maybe some other reason. So let's be more selective about what we throw away. This means we can either safely throw away more data or we can get better performance from that 1% rate that we did before. Now that bias sampling can be dealt with appropriately, this method can be deployed routinely and hopefully bring about compounding savings in any, uh, any machine learning and, and, and system and, and data pipeline. Uh, a little bit of work still needs to be done, or actually quite a bit of work still needs to be done in terms of solving for specific cases. Uh, as this paper does for logistic regression, uh, which is very common, but you know there are a lot of other um, uh, there are a lot of other specific cases out there. The paper uh, gives you the general case, the general solution for bias correction for um, uh, for for supervised machine learning for a certain uh, general sampling type. But you know I think a lot of work needs to be done in kind of crystallizing what those means for specific types of machine learning, and also accounting for some different sampling types that I put in the, the future work section. So let me know if you're interested in any of those questions. I'll give you my assessment. Finally, this exercise made me come to understand that the teaching of Bayesian inference, uh, while it's fairly standardized, is still ripe for innovation from educators and from systematizers. For example, if you look at the mathematics of Bayes' rule, it benefits from considering probability to be proportional rather than absolute. In other words, you know, how is it, maybe A is twice as likely as B rather than, you know, there's a 0.06% chance uh, of A specifically, which is more absolute. So this allows us to safely remove all those pesky constant factors which are ultimately unnecessary 
uh, when you work out the Bayesian math, and also it confuses the hell out of everyone trying to follow the math. So I tried to rely more on proportionalities and the idea of probability ratios rather than raw probabilities, but I'd like to see better notation around it. Uh, for example, in a proportionality statement, uh, it should be, I use kind of that squiggly line, it should be a little more obvious which symbols are considered variable and which are considered constant and make it a lot easier to manipulate. So um, yeah, that's one takeaway. I hope to continue this line of research and incorporate these tools into my future projects, including newmap.ai, which is an exciting new thing that uh, I'm currently developing. Uh, more on that soon. Uh, but um, yeah, hope you, uh, hope you enjoy this piece of research, and uh, I, hope, uh, uh, I hope a few people out there uh, find it interesting enough to read and find it useful. So have a good day. All right, for more info on, on that specifically, you can listen to the full episode we did recently. Uh, that's episode 218, localmaxradio.com slash 218. The episode, uh, today's episode is 225, so that would be localmaxradio.com slash 225. Have a great week, everyone. That's the show. To support the Local Maximum, sign up for exclusive content and our online community at maximum.locals.com. The Local Maximum is available wherever podcasts are found. If you want to keep up, remember to subscribe on your podcast app. Also, check out the website with show notes and additional materials at localmaxradio.com. If you want to contact me, the host, send an email to localmaxradio at gmail.com. Have a great week. Feel the power.